much love within our hearts Heaven knows Yet in my life it seems to me It comes and goes I didn't blame you When you first began to doubt Something I'm still trying to figure out. I never thought that you could ever break my heart. I was a fool to think that we could be apart. Never knew to have what love was all about. Cause it was something I was still trying to figure out. Trying to figure out. I 
Hello and welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name is Jason Barnard and that is still trying to figure out from Gordon Haskell's new album, The Cat Who's Got the Cream. And of course, I've got Gordon here today. Uh, welcome, Gordon. Thanks a lot, Jason. In terms of compiling this album, uh, how long does the, the material go back? Is must have been more recent? Yeah, it's, it's uh, all started in um, October uh, 2018. Yeah. I was um, writing the whole thing in an apartment in Greece after a huge tsunami of um, events that happened in my life. And that's what I usually need to spur me to write. Um, usually, uh, you know, if I look back through my work, it, I can actually identify uh, drama, maybe to a strong word, but something um, creates from a, uh, an emotional turmoil period. Mm-hmm. And that was that was one such period. That, so it was October 2018. I didn't know exactly what was planned. Uh, I hadn't planned to make an album, but it was obvious that as the material poured out, it was a statement, if you like, of my um, a lifetime journey, really, because mm-hmm. it, I reached a standard that I'd been trying to reach since the Fleur de Lis in 66. So it, is, it felt like, ah, I finally, <laughs> finally got there, you know? As, in terms of um, standard of uh, writing and singing. Um, so I'm thrilled about the album, really. It's very satisfying. It shows with our opening track still trying to figure out, I don't know if confidence is the right word, but you're comfortable in your own skin? That's it. That's it. It's both, really. It's both. Mm. It's fantastic um, to get there. It's fantastic to get there. It's, it's, it's a beautiful record, and, you know, I can find fault with everything I've done, but I, I can't yet uh, find fault with this album. It's, 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 if you like, it's my What's Going On, Marvin Gaye. It's my Sergeant Pepper. It's, mm. it's, it's the peak of what I've, I'm all about, and it's taken me a long time, but so what? Because our next track is is more than that. I mean, that's got to be a contender of one of the best songs you've ever written. Yes, um, I thought so. It is. Thank you. And emotionally, I mean, when I first started playing it live, I, I started road testing these songs in the summer and into the October tour in England. And uh, when I got to that one, I choked up. And um, so they're personal, but they're also they're very, very real. I mean, I, yeah. I, I can honestly say that my material is real, and that's what connects with people in the audience. They write to me. I, I know from their mail that I connect with their emotions. So it, it, I am over the top emotional, but it's real. You know, it's human beings. You know, we're human beings, and we all have these extreme emotions, and uh, some of us express it. It kind of comes from the heart. Yeah. Nowhere else, yeah. I, I would love to have been uh, a staff writer. I mean, the, the old guys, like the Tin Pan Alley mob, they were capable of writing nine to five, and they were good at it, but I'd never been able to do that. Um, it always had to be some <laughs> catastrophic <laughs> event. And I think, oh, God, you know, 
I'm destroyed here. I've got to write a song. And um, of course, that's why it comes from the heart because it's it's a real it's a real issue. It's a real event. This is real. I know who it's about. The audience know that I'm crying my heart out, you know. And it comes across. That's what soul is, isn't it? That's what soul singers they come mm. across like that. Yeah, I mean, the material seems to combine two things, which is that resonance and and where it you can see that it comes from you but the the melodies are in some ways do have a little bit of that tin pan alley element in terms of the timeless melodies at times there's people that tell me oh all the melodies have been taken that's why you've got the material out there that you have but uh, i dispute that because um that um first song that you played still trying to figure out um, to me, uh, my sax player said, you know, you've, you've hit a, a, a new melody out of three or four chords, and it still can be done. It's just, yeah. it's just rare. You know, you, you can't come across these tunes just by sitting down in the room and saying, right, let's write an original tune. Um, so, yeah, you want your song to be like a Carol King tune that we can remember because they were great songwriters and I don't want to be anything less. And that was what my 54 year old struggle was about. You know, can you do it? Can you improve? Are you better than you were in the seventies, eighties, nineties? Yes, you were, uh, you are. I mean, and that's, that's a good enough, that's a good enough path to take instead of how much money I've made or not made. And really, I was very enriched when I when I came back to England with that bunch of songs. It felt like I was carrying a bag full of gold. But you can't say uh, you're thinking about the money. It's just, you know... You know the value of things. The songs have been undervalued in recent years. Just like the poets try to tell us what they see And like the painter will endeavor to portray In his extraordinary way What no words could ever say When we Much more than that We tell ourselves We'll find a way Before the tides will turn All our bridges burn We'll be more than that Much more than that What's fascinating to the skies are gray, they'd all turn back to blue. What they say of heaven's absolutely true. 
but impossible to say in any ordinary way when we were more than that much more than that we told ourselves Arrangements on the album too are very well crafted. Oh my God, the arranger! I've been waiting years to meet somebody like this that was available. This guy, Paul Bark, I'd never come across him. Um, he's actually older than I am, and I'm seventy-three, oh. you know. But he's old school. He's, he he uh, came up through the Sinatra years, and those arrangers were his heroes. So. It was a real chance for him to get hold of some songs that he could do something with, because he said it, working with me was like working with the American Songbook, which was the best compliment I could have had, mm. because they say they don't write songs like they used to. That's what I was trying to do. I mean, the, the song, It's a Misunderstanding, he's playing sort of George Shearing-type piano on it, yeah. and Guy Barker's playing muted trumpet or flugelhorn. And it's 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 that classy stuff that Johnny Mercer was doing, and um, mm. uh, even Cole Porter on that first track. The song is reminiscent of a, the construction of a Cole Porter tune. So you get an arranger, and he brings it to life in that genre that, that you think, God, I didn't know I could write a song like that. But it's the combination of the two. If I'd just done a guitar bass, drums, piano album, it would, wouldn't have been nearly so good, in my view, because it was just an opportunity to, to get the best out of the song. And I'm, I'm 
cinematic in a way. You know, I can hear them in movies, whereas um, before, uh, you know, it was always done on the cheap. Everything was done on the cheap. Is that why you've remade How Wonderful You Are? Because you, you're able yeah. to bring that arrangement to, to that track. Yeah, yeah. We did How Wonderful You Are in, in <laughs> half an hour, um, just live. And whilst it was admirable, mm. it, it's, it's, and it's got the magic because it's, it's live and it's, again, it's from the heart and the public connected with it. It didn't need any hope or anything. It just happened. But you wonder, you know, over 20 years, why, why has it never been covered? Why, why hasn't anybody, uh, put it in a movie? And you think, well, because it sounds like a, like it's, uh, not fit for, the, the best you know so we've done it uh, so that it can it can go into any situation uh, it's a beautiful arrangement and it is um, I hate to use the word but it's classy you've polished up an old jewel then yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah obviously you know I'm very fond of the original but um, yeah yeah why not it's a, it's a samba now instead of uh, whatever it was before Attracted by the lights Listen to the jazz And how we spun And I know It won't be long Before they play that song Do you know How wonderful It's a sentimental sound Make me want to fool around With somebody Who is wishing On a star I'll pull my hat down low Go up and say hello There'll be those for whom the song has no tune, but I know it works for me, and I'm sure you will agree that it illustrates exactly. Show sure. 
like to take you back 55 years now to the Fleur de Lis, which is um, yeah. one of your first bands, certainly in, in terms of being, being signed to. And you were, you, were, you were bassist, weren't you? Yeah. Um, that first record was remade with Glyn Johns. Oh. He was a, a young engineer at IBC in Portland Place. I mean, what a place to start mm. with one of the best engineers. And I was thinking about it before you called... Um, from 66, 67, 68, uh, there was a huge, there were, must have been 30 or 40 of us in London. Yeah. And we moved like a swarm of bees from uh, studio to studio and, uh, and everybody knew everybody, both sides of the fence. So we were a session band at Atlantic Records. Our boss was Frank Fenton, who was the, yeah. who was running the show at Atlantic. Uh, we had the run of the building. We could walk into his office at any time, go through the cupboards where all the new records were coming out. So you'd pick up the new Young Rascals, uh, the new Aretha Franklin coming out, the new Otis Red in Sam and Dave. And nobody threw you out. You were, you were part of a team, part of a, I don't know, it's a family, really. Uh, we were on 15 quid a week, but it was worth a grand a week because... Uh, at the end of the office day, you know, five o'clock or six o'clock, um, we'd all, Frank would call the limo around. I mean, we're on £15 a week and we're nobody's, right? But he's got the Beatles car. Alfie, the driver, was driving the Beatles. And um, we'd get in the back of the black Austin princess and go to the speakers free of charge. Hmm. We'd often be the resident band. Hendrix would get up and play with us for half an hour. Um, we'd see all the packs coming through from America that were all unknown. Uh, who did we see? We saw Loudon Wainwright, the bloke that wrote um, Hey Joe, Tim, is it Tim somebody? Can't Tim Rose. Tim Rose. He was doing a gig. And that's where I first saw people 
people playing with one guitar and making it work, which I never forgot, which came in handy when I had to do it in the 80s. So as a bass player, um, we were part of a family. And incidentally, on that first track you just played, guess who the guitar player is? It's the guitarist from the Fleur de Lis. 1967, Bryn Haworth. Oh. I've stayed friends with all those guys. That's 54 years of friendship. Wow. It was such a good, hip crowd. I mean, I'll give, I'll give you an example of who came through that office. There was, there was, Mike Noble was a songwriter. He wanted us to do his songs. He became head of A&M later and managed Jeronoma Trading. It was Bill Kimber. He cut Lazy Life with my song he became head of RCA uh, there was Rob Dickens he was the postal oh, yeah. boy <laughs> <laughs> from the bottom to the top who became the chairman <laughs> yeah. um, there the, 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 was those guys that managed the who Chris Stamp and Kit Lambert with their dogs uh, they came and they signed the who to track we were there while it was all happening. Bee Gees turned up from Australia, all with broken teeth. I mean, it was fantastic, the family of people. Tim Hardin. Do you remember Tim Hardin? Yeah. I went out on the road with Tim Hardin. This guy that had written, uh, If I Were a Carpenter, yeah. a lady came from Baltimore, black sheep boy. Uh, I was playing bass, and he, he was playing to 15 people. Nobody was interested. Hmm. And you don't forget that in the fact that you're with fantastic people and nobody's interested. What counts is, are they good? Yeah, they are. And one day people will get it. But while they don't get it, we're nowhere. And you you grow up like that. You never forget that whatever follows afterwards, most of it is horse buggy. You know, it's... It's just nonsense, and that those years in the Fleur de Lis, ah, oh, I cannot describe what fun we had. The Savile every Sunday, um, rubbing shoulders with Brian Epstein, one of the signers. Um, uh, Hendrix did a show at the Savile, got up and played. Uh, Sergeant Pepper, um, the Beatles were always in the speakeasy. We had the Bag of Nails, we had the Revolution. At the Scots uh, St James, we just moved around like a swarm of bees, and and it cost nothing, even though it was <laughs> terrific. It's brilliant times. What what led to the? You released a, with the band, released a couple pair of singles on on the immediate label, um, including now kind of mod classic circles. Yeah. Was it Andrew Luke Oldham that linked uh, you? Up? Well, yeah, Tony Calder, uh, his partner. But at that time, we were with a, a Southampton. Avenue Artists Agency, and they, they'd got Dave D, Dozy, Beacon, Mick and Titch off the ground, and they were trying to get us off the ground. And I, I suppose Tony Calder and Andrew Lou Oldham came along at the right time. And there was a, a flap that a flap on that the Who's song "Instant Party" could not be released because of some mm. publishing dispute. And they said, if you record it now under another name, Circles, you might get the hit with it. So we did, and uh, we didn't get the airplay, but it became a classic. In fact, um, last year, I sold my one and only 45 RPM copy of it because it 
paid for my clutch to be repaired on my car. <laughs> 600 quid I got for it. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a classic record, uh, but, you know, unfortunately. If you don't get airplay, you don't get hit. And if, if you don't get airplay, you, you don't retain your fame. You know, the, uh, I, I've kept a career going in Poland because they treat me like Van Morrison, so I'm always on the air. Uh, over, over here, I have to work for it and have to keep trying to make a better record. I don't get played, you know. playing with a lot of soul artists and doing sessions and the next track being uh, Donny Elbert in between the heartaches is that yeah. true? Well it is true because Booker T and the MGs there was Duck Dunn and, and Steve Cropper uh, Al Jackson the drummer so we were fans of theirs and while they were waiting to go to Cardiff and start the Stax tour they hung about with us 
for a week and Duck and I shared a lot of talk and he sat on the amp smoking his pipe like an old farmer <laughs> boy and uh, it, it taught me about counting in he actually taught us how to count in a song to get the groove before you start the groove is in the atmosphere and I've never forgotten that our informative years were spent in 67 in the Polydor Studios with guys that knew how to make great records, same sort of people that were making Motown records. They were down in Memphis and Muscle Shoals churning out all the Aretha stuff, which nobody had heard yet. So what an education. And what I found difficult was having... You could say indoctrination, you know, in a good way. I was indoctrinated with feel, soul, and the right notes and the right amount of space. And then we moved into the 70s and I joined the remains of King Crimson. And they took 12 hours to get a drum sound. And I just looked at them and I thought, well, you're idiots. And mm. it's very difficult not to think that. Um, I've since adjusted my opinion because I didn't join King Crimson. I'd like, you're the first interviewer that I can put that on record. I did not join King Crimson. I joined Robert Tripp. That was all that was left of that lineup. King Crimson was five guys, wasn't it? Yeah. That made a magic sound. I joined Robert Fripp. And I can tell you that Robert Fripp, me and a drummer, does not make King Crimson. It was a shambolic mess. So I left. But you try and tell a fan that, and they, they won't have it. A few words said in anger Made my mind a stranger So that's why
So going back to the the great days in Polydor Building uh, with all those legends, um, I'm, I'm never going to change my view of it. And it's socially the other side of the desk. We were there was no hostility between the A and R stuff and the publishers. The publishers were actually helpful. I mean, I'd, we'd go to the pub. It'd be yeah. Uh, you know, all down Bond Street, there were there were loads of places that we all used to meet. They said, "Oh, we just signed an unknown writer called Bob Dylan, an unknown writer, and and uh, Manfred Mann are going to cut one of his tunes." You know, they were really excited, and they got him for nothing. And then Neil Diamond, mm. oh, Lulu's just cut a boat that I wrote. Who's the writer? A bloke called Neil Diamond. Oh, um, and Alan Price is doing uh, uh, Simon Smith. Weird record. Uh, but uh, Randy Newman. Um, <laughs> they were all newly signed writers being pushed in London. And we were there yeah. watching it happen. And it was such a privilege and so much fun. And and the publishers would say, well, what's wrong with that, Gordon? Is you, you, you know... It's boring you know, if you're trying to write a song. And you, you had great coaches. I was being coached on the bass guitar. I was being coached on, on the songwriting. I did get I did I did get lucky with my first published song. It went to number one in two countries. Was that lace? Yeah, lazy life. Yeah, but generally speaking, you know, I had so much to learn. Whereas somebody like Ray Davies was writing magical songs as soon as he left school. You know, I was never like that. But I was a bass player, and I was a pretty good bass player. Yeah, but Lazy Life's been recorded a few times. Obviously, mm. it was quite big uh, in South Africa and Australia by... Quentin, Quentin Jake, Klopp Jager, South Africa, number one. Yeah. Heart and Soul, Australia, number two. Then Billy Fury cut it in 84. But um, William E., who cut it in with us, yeah. which is how it was born, he became the label manager at RCA, in 1978, and um, he thanked me because he gave me a two-year recording. <laughs> it was that was that family. See? We were moving around like a swarm of bees, and it was almost like um, a brotherhood. You know, they, everybody knew my stuff. They saw me growing, and they said, "Yeah, I think we can make an album." So it was connected. It's who you know, you know, as a classic case of who I knew in '67. We all grew up together. We were all kids. Um, nobody knew where they were going, really. And nobody cared because we were having such a good time. And then gradually it all filtered out and some people stopped being a singer and became an A&R guy. And, mm. and you could walk in. To, you know, we, 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 had the, we, we had the run of the buildings. That's what I miss. Because you could walk in, you could be sociable, and they'd be pleased to see you. I don't know of anywhere in London now, where you can even phone up and say, oh, can I see so-and-so? Um, you know, it's so corporate and it's separate. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a completely different business. Which means that, of course, it's um, boring. You know, that's the trouble. It's not fun. No. Uh, music yeah. is, is fun. You know? it's, it's a beautiful thing, music. It's not meant to be turned into an accountant's wet dream, you know.
as well with Bryn. Yeah, yeah. I've chosen one of my favourite Fleur de Lis tracks, I Can See a Light. Oh, yeah. I mean, you can tell you've been playing with more soul artists, although it's kind of pigeonholed into the sort of psychedelia thing. There is yeah. a, a real soulful edge to that song. Yeah, yeah. Um, we were churning them out so quickly that, um, uh, you know, you, you, you don't really have a particular favourite of that period. Oh. Um, although uh, some of the Sharon Tandy stuff I, I like. Yeah, I've got, I'm going to come on to that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you actually knew Jimi Hendrix in, in that sort of early period when he came over to London, didn't you? Yeah, we were staying in the same flat, yeah. the Animals flat in Cranley Gardens. They just dropped him off while they went on an American tour. They let us stay there because we were homeless. Um, and we all stayed there. Uh, we showed him Charing Cross Road where he could buy guitars. He arrived with just an acoustic guitar, so he needed to pick out a strat. And, and then he started playing with us. Uh, he, we did a session at Kingsway Studios. We did four tracks with him on a fleur de lis attempt thing. Nothing came of it. Uh, although one track is on, I think one track's on a compilation somewhere. And then um, he would get up at the speakeasy and jam with us. I mean, I, I was playing bass, and he, <laughs> it makes me laugh, really, because, um, you know, I was 20 years old. Uh, I was overwhelmed by it all, let's face it. I was overwhelmed. But I was a good bass player. But he said, sing a blues. Um, so that he could solo, you know. And at that age, I didn't even know what a blues was. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know what to sing. So he just, um, you know, we hadn't rehearsed. He just got up and said, sing a blues. And I thought, oh, God, what are we going to sing? It started, you know, so. But yeah, it's funny. But we, we, we must have done that four times or something. And then apparently he played bass as well. The drummer reminded me of it. He took the bass and Bryn played guitar with him. So uh, I was so friendly. I was fantastic. Walking at night With the light You can see through the eyes a day day during May you can hear people laughing and sing listening to sound in the playground
mentioned Sharon Tandy, and um, many people, one of the, her great singles was Hold On, which you wrote? Yeah, with Brent, yeah. Brent didn't get credit, I don't think, but it was his riff, and he was... Um, he forgot to put his name on a piece of paper, and um, I, I think he's corrected it now, but, yeah, it was his inspiration, but I wrote the words, and he wrote the, the sort of tune, really. Yeah, it was... Um, we cut it first on the B side of uh, Rupert's People, which was a track we did as a session. And I, I like that version too. That's the Fleur de Lis version, if you like. Another name. But yeah, Sharon was very popular. I think it charted in, in Germany. Yeah, yeah. Certainly did a lot of tally. Did you back Sharon? Yeah, loads of times, yeah. Yeah, for sure. we were her group. Frank was actually her husband, Frank Fencher. Oh. Um, he brought her over from South Africa and then they split up and um, but Sharon became well it was Sharon really that got us into Atlantic because oh. she needed a backing group uh, she came across us in Orange Court and introduced us to Frank Frank thought we were great we all played together like a real unit and he started um throwing sessions at us and then he put us on a wage and we just churned out loads of stuff for the Polydor label you know iffy things as well you know but that's the nature of being a session guy you have to do whatever comes up you know when you guys playing with Sharon on much of that material it's quite a powerful combination your, your band yeah. and then Sharon I don't know if people many people have heard Sharon if they haven't they're in for a bit of a treat but what a voice yeah, um, my favourite was Daughter of the Sun. I mean, that's a fantastic record. Just after I left, they got they got Top of the Pops, you know. Oh. Uh, Tony and Tandy. That was the Fleur de Lis. Uh, they got Top of the Pops with a song called Two Can Make It Together. Do you know about that one? No. Bryn was playing guitar. Keith was playing drums. The new bass player, uh, Tag Virus, Tago Virus. Hmm. And it nearly made it. It got on a playlist. And uh, Tony Tony Head was a singer that I brought up from Bournemouth.
I've got to love him right now. Yesterday he spoke to me. I didn't even know his name. Right then I fell in love. No. Sharon, you're sounding fine. You're sounding fine, really. It's it's not for you that I'm stopping it. You sound great. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Let's do one more right away. So um, that was uh, I was really fed up that I'd left. You know, that was a big mistake me leaving because I was never, ever happy after that for years and years and years. Uh, when I just went from band to band looking for the same family atmosphere and the love and the love amongst the players, the feel. Mm. Uh, it just didn't exist anywhere. It was, it, I was, I was unhappy for a long time till I went on my own, really. Because you kind of went from various projects. Just, just before I mention that, the, there's quite an extensive piece that I did with Keith uh, about the fleur de lis. So oh, yeah. uh, anyone who wants to kind of find out what happened to the band and the, the, the few singles after... Gordon left um, can can find out there, but um, you released a, a solo album and, and obviously the King Crimson thing, but it didn't feel like you'd quite found your where you needed to be. No, I, I was easily domineered. I was I was domineered by Fripp. I was domineered by the um, producer of the first album, but imagine being presented with a 40-piece orchestra yeah. in Lansdowne Studios that want to do 10 of your songs, uh, you think, crikey, it's, uh, that's something else. And it was impressive, but I wasn't in charge. And when you're not in charge, you've only got yourself to blame if it doesn't turn out the way you want it. But I don't think it's anything to be no. ashamed of. There's a couple of good tracks, but I was, I was young. I was a bass player trying to be a songwriter, uh, they thought I had a good bunch of tunes, uh, enough to make it album of the week. But I knew in my heart that uh, it was a long way from Carol King, and I had a long way to go. And after King Crimson, I was emotionally shaken up, and I wrote It Is and It Isn't, which has become a, quite a collectible album. Because they... It's a great record. It's a re- it sounds like you've re- really started to get your sound there. Yeah. So that that was the beginning of a long period of um, confusion, if you like. Am I a bass player? You know, I had flirtations with a little brief episode with Van Morrison, Alvin Lee, Cliff Richard. Uh, then I had a little band with uh, Jim Russell and Hiroshi Kato, The Remains of Stretch. So I was still very much enjoying playing bass. And it wasn't until post-punk, you know, when the when the punk thing cleaned out the entire industry and all was all shut, you could no longer walk into an A&R department because <laughs> they wrecked the places. So the whole business changed after that. And uh, come 82, that's when I really had to decide, can you do this on your own or not? And I remembered those speakeasy days yeah. of Donny Elber getting up and singing on his own and uh, and Laden Wainwright, and, I, and by that time, I'd adapted my feel from a bass player into a kind of J.J. Kale kind of guitar player, and it was really working. 
and mm. I put a set together and started doing a few places and I got booked back and I never looked back since but it was a very very long road it was 20 no, 16 years of hard slog and it was so low so it was it was a lonely life but one hell of an education and and a practice you know I would never have got that good if I hadn't I've been forced to do five, six nights a week, several hours a night, and, and hold the crowd because, um, you know, you've got to be a lion tamer to work bars. Uh, it's a lot tougher than playing fancy gigs and stadiums hmm. where they, you, you've got the prestige before you get up on the stage. But um, if you can turn a pub around, which I could, uh, you'll never starve because. Hmm. Um, well, the barman, it was a plain, simple attitude. You know, if you sell more beer, you get booked back. So I sold more beer and I got booked back. And it, I had 16 years of it. Um, some nights, mm. you know, we did five sets of three quarters. You know, that's a long set. That's like the Hamburg days of the Beatles. Uh, that's what gave us the voice. The voice got better and better and better through hard labor. So what are you going to do? You, know, you can't have regrets, can you? Because you've suddenly been blessed with something that you never had before. Mm. If I'd stayed where I was in King Crimson, I, I wouldn't have developed at all, which is how I look at some of those 70s acts. They don't, they, they, they stay with their thing. They don't have to develop. They cash in on what they do and they stay there. But I had to keep going. Um, and that's what the new album more or less shows, the rise from a small beginning mm. way back in 66 to 2020 where I'm at the top of my game and uh, I don't think I can do any better. I think this is it. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, we, we were talking earlier about it is and it isn't, but there's still yeah. quite a lot of gems. If you dig into your back catalogue, some, some really yeah. songs that people may not be familiar with, like uh, Just a Lovely Day that still hold their own to this day? Yeah. Um, I was in quite a green mood in that, in, in, in that period. It was it was like caring about the planet. I mean, it was 71, so it was a bit early. But um, no one's more important than the earthworm. <laughs> it was such a thing, you know, that what's important is the, the ground that we grow our food in. And just a lovely day was the way that the simple life was was based on grow your own food, get a bit of shelter. Uh, the rest is nonsense. It was kind of a, a, a very green issued album of um, tr- an attempt at wisdom and sanity. You know.
Once upon a time there was a windmill by a stream The sails of which went round and round They put me in a dream I used to be a dragon flying T'was there I used to lay I had no thoughts of changing patterns It was just a lovely day Once upon a time There were some fields where you could run Where you could stop from burning up Where you could see the sun Where farmers work from dawn till dusk Not thinking of their pay They had no thoughts of changing patterns It was just a lovely day Talking of no one's more important than the earthworm, Worms, from that album, for a brief period you were in Stackridge, and Stackridge, I think, after you left, actually recorded No yeah. One's More Important Than the Earthworm. And didn't they do a good job? Yeah. Lovely job, yeah. And Andy, Andy Davis, who was in Stackridge, is on the new album. He's doing oh. backing vocals on a track. I love, see, the people I love throughout my life, I've, I still love, um, Stackridge had real magic. Yeah, I've, I've previously had uh, James Warren on the podcast. Yeah, great. I used to watch them all the time if I could. I went on tour with them for a while. And uh, I loved all their stuff. Very original. Very original. Was it just not for you in relation to kind of going into the band as such? Well, again, um, James and, and you're always supporting that. I mean, they, they're, they're like a, 
a married couple that they love each other one minute and hate each other the next. <laughs> and, um, mm. and they were feuding, and I, I liked the two of them when they were happy together. Yeah. So the band I joined was without James, and it was trying to be something else. And they didn't need to change. They were sacrist, and no need for the Beatles to change. Yeah. They, they, they followed so neatly after the Beatles with with the way that things were free.
talked uh, earlier about that period where you were playing seven nights a week in bars, etc., and basically learned your craft. And then by the late 80s into the early 90s, you started recording again. And I've chosen Hambleton Hill, which is a, oh, yeah. a, just, a, just a brilliant song. Yeah, uh, we still do that in the set. Today it's always requested, and my sax player loves it because we we can uh, jazz it up at the end, so you can play a jazzy thing. But yeah, it's, uh, that was a bit of magic. What kind of led you to recording again? Because I think was it in that period you you basically self released your material and weren't did, you weren't playing the old record company game. Well, I went back to Bill Kimber, the guy that was at RCA, and he'd got the push, and he was setting up with Tony Calder again from, from media. So ah. I started my... He said, well, you start your own label, and we're a distributor. Well, I started my own label, and I funded the whole thing. It cost me 33,000 quid on a loan from NatWest. And um, they promptly went bankrupt. Oh. So I was oh. the baby. So <laughs> I got a job in the Baltic on this ship, which was five hours a night. And I shifted all the stock, and I managed to pay off the debt, would you believe? <laughs> so Hamwood and Hill, the album, actually recouped its its investment, but only by the skin of my teeth. I mean, I I, I was in love at the time, broken hearted, and that's where the material came from. And uh, I said to myself, well, I want to die, you know, so dramatic. I want to die. So I went out and blew 33 grand on making the record so that she would love me more. The trouble was I didn't die. I had to pay all the money back. <laughs> and, you know, in the end, you just laugh at the whole ludicrous life you've led so close to the wind and, and up and down. But all that time when you're going up and down on the roller coaster, you're inching your way upwards in terms of yeah. ability. You're getting better you're not getting worse you're getting better and you don't notice it in fact the last two years i didn't notice when i came to do the vocals on this new album i found it so easy and i was brave and i was confident mm. and i couldn't believe that i got that good if you like because I, I i was always a little bit reticent to let go on earlier records you know, but where did that come from? I mean, I've been working in Poland and Germany, but I haven't, I haven't been over-gigging. In other words, um, I haven't noticed myself growing. But you do. You can't help it. And it's, it's healthy and it's good. And again, you know, you're not thinking, am I making any money? You're thinking, oh, I'm getting better. This job's getting easier. The songs are better. The vocals are better. The arrangements are better. How did that happen? And it's practice, I'm afraid. It's just hard work and practice. And some people have got it when they're 21 by the name of Paul McCartney or Stevie Wonder. But Gordon Haskell had, had to practice. That's basically it. He had to practice, but he got there in the end.
passing of time was your friend for the asking And all you were asking was the passing of time And the whole of my world stood so wonderfully still And I knew I was tumbling head over you And all in the space of a Saturday morning High on Hamilton Hill All I remember not really knowing where we were going on Hamilton Hill. The pain you had gone through, the dream you held on to, no longer mattered on Hamilton Hill. And the whole of my world stood so wonderfully still. And I knew I was tumbling head over heels And all in the space of a Saturday morning High on heaven It all hangs in my head All of the Saturday morning I will be walking on Hamilton Hill I'll turn every stone there for what I've known there for it all I've A Saturday morning High on Hamilton scheme of things and that do you think that that was the start of the period where you 
started feeling comfortable in your own skin as a, a songwriter and performer? Yeah, it was. Um, I, I'd settled into my own thing by that time. Uh, I, I'd, I'd found that a familiar pattern was arising where there was a kind of spiritual thread running through where you'd almost receive the songs. I mean, James Taylor talks about uh, grabbing the songs out of the air and he, he's lucky because he gets some of them. I think there's something in that. In that a lot, of, uh, I mean, like a mumbo jumbo uh, scheme of things, um, that there's a lot of stuff that when you write it, you don't necessarily understand what you're saying until you've lived a bit longer and you make sense of it. Mm. And the scheme of things, it was, I mean, if, if, it was really about my guitar player, uh, Steve and my girlfriend, and the third verse, you know, the, the triangle between two guys and a bloke. But it led into the whole triangle business of the pyramids oh. and ancient wisdom and the the fall and rise of empires, the rise and fall of empires. So, so currently we're looking at the the fall of the American Empire, aren't we? Um, we had the fall of the Persian Empire with all the pharaohs got together when things went on the skids. Well, 2020, here we are again, you know? The world's in tremendous debt. And that song is saying, well, it's all in the scheme of things. You know, we're... Mm. We're just a rung on the ladder. There's no good thinking just because you're a billionaire, you're somebody. That's all going to be wiped out. You're going to be, you know, you're going to be like the rest of us. I mean, you know, it's it's the fall and rise of stuff, and uh, all in the scheme of mm. things, it's it's a natural way of the universe that uh, the empires they they all get too big for their boots and overconfident and become tyrannical and then they go into Sodom and Gomorrah and they collapse uh, it's a pattern and you look back through ancient history it's all there every empire has fallen and it's all because of the tyranny and idiots in charge and uh, you know this is you don't have to look very far out your window to see a bunch of idiots do you <laughs> no. Um, it's madness. It's madness. Um, but at least, at least we've seen it before, and we know what it is. And uh, the main thing is, don't be afraid of it, and just focus on what you do and do it well. That's it's down to you and me. Uh, that's a song as well on the new album uh, called "Stands to Reason." Uh, ultimately, it's down to you and me and the guy in the street, because nobody else is going to look after us. You can't rely on anyone else. We, we've got to be, we've got to sort ourselves out and stop looking for some, uh, you know, authority to sort of say what's what, because they haven't got a bloody clue what they're doing. Or if they have, they should be locked up. Said before we go, we ought to let them know. 
it was only a, a year or two after the scheme of things where you became an unlikely pop star with How Wonderful You Are. And then you yeah. had you recorded the album Harry's Bar prior to that? Well, it was put together in a car uh, on the way up to signing to Warner's because uh, I, I made the manager put out How Wonderful You Are. I said, look, we might get Parkinson, we might get lucky. He thought it was nuts. Everybody thought I was nuts. Nobody buys singles anymore. Uh, I knew Johnny from the back to the 67 days when he was the pirate on the pirate stations. He'd come in, he'd pick up Otis's records, Aretha's records. He'd see us in the office. That's what I'm talking about, friendship, last 54 years. So I, I said, Johnny, uh, here's my new single. And uh, he played it. And the response was a phenomenon. Um, we couldn't get the records into the stores nobody would take it they said well he's 55 he's got no video forget it so it was going to die so the manager in his infinite wisdom decided to um, sell it to warners who offered a, a deal he added up the numbers and put it in the paper that i i was a pub singer picking up 2.8 million quid which became the story of the year, really, because I was in every single newspaper on every single TV channel. And all they could talk about was the money. And uh, I did um, Richard and Judy. You know, it was also serious. Um, I was into the music, right? There's a, there's a musician who knows, you know, he's talking about 67 right the way through. You can't dispute, I know what I'm talking about, right? These people... They don't know anything. <laughs> they don't know anything. Uh, they focus on the money and the celebrity. Mm. And it was of no interest to no. me. So they say things like, what are you going to do with all this money, Gordon? And I said, and I, I, I was calm. You know, I, was very, I was very good on telly. I didn't put a foot wrong. But I did because I, I sent it up. I said, I'm going to Kempton Park because there's good horse riding <laughs> at 3.30. Uh, you know, I hadn't picked up 2.8 million. Of course I hadn't. It was a lie. People perceive things. No matter what you say, they'll believe what they're told. No matter what you tell them, they'll believe it. And they believed I was a millionaire and a pub singer. Nobody was interested in my past. And before I knew it, I was a guest on the cookery program making a pudding. Now, isn't that marvelous for a musician like Stevie Wonder? or or uh, Marvin Gaye or, or Eric Clapton to be invited on the cookery programme. What kind of management does that to an artist? Ultimately, although though you had quite a lot of success, sold a hell of a lot of records, you just ultimately you just didn't want to play that game? I, I was disgusted. First of all, they don't recognise an artist. They don't know what an artist is, so they've got no common interest. Secondly... They're boring. I'm, I, I can't put it any other way. The celebrity culture, compared to hanging out with Aretha Franklin and Otis Redding and Jimi Hendrix, is just a little bit dull. I have to say that. You know, I can't apologize for it. But to be a celebrity, which you could say I was for two or three years, it was of no interest to me whatsoever. If I'd been put into the right venues... I could have retained some credibility, but they killed that artist. That artist then was slaughtered. I, 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 I was functioning, and I was doing some good concerts in Poland and Germany. 
But in England, uh, I wasn't doing much at all of any. I didn't even get George Holland. Why? What? Because I'm because I'm the singing postman or something. You know, there was a kind of stench around but, it. But um, it did. The the next track being "All the Time in the yeah. World" from uh, Harry's Bar. Uh, that song actually was one of the songs that was a, a hit in in Poland and has helped. Yeah. Given that you weren't on the cook, I'm assuming you weren't on the cookery programs yeah. over there. You were able to build build a career over there. Yeah, I was. Yeah, and I am. Yeah. I am sure. Yeah, that's why I'm with the Philharmonic. You know, the, the, can you imagine me doing the British Philharmonic? You know, no, but uh, perhaps I will one day. But uh, no, there's a, there, there was a big repair job, um, and it's basically what gets in the newspaper, and it's, uh, it doesn't matter anymore because I've got this wonderful new album, and it speaks for itself. Does it matter if it's a quarter to two? The love of my life has been long overdue. But what does it matter if it's three or it's four? Don't even try to make sense of it all. I guess I got all the time in the world Guess I got all the time in the world So lock me up in here And throw away the key Cause if that's what they call home sweet home Then it's Home sweet home for me Must be the only place to be Must be the only place to be Am I still dreaming? Am I asleep? How did I get in? This water so deep But what does it matter If it's five after five You're giving me The time of my life I guess I got on The time in the world I guess I got on So lock me up in hell And throw away the key Cause if that's what they call home sweet home Then it's home sweet home for me Must be the only place to be The skies are 
Closing track is "I'm Still Mad About You," and I've chosen the the swing version because you've got you've got two versions of that on uh, the cat mm. who's got the cream. Was it that you basically you recorded it uh, two different ways and actually found yeah. that both worked in their own sort of field? Well, it happened on the same day, which believe the arranger oh. said, "You know, this would work as a kind of uh, uh, I think he hip hop," and I didn't even know what he's talking about, but hmm. uh, so a laid-back version, because uh, I'd written it as a swing band thing, because I'd never written, never even attempted to write uh, a tune like a Cole Porter tune with swing sonata-type melody. And I'd, I'd done a few big band gigs in Poland. I wasn't crazy about playing with the big band because they're so loud, but mm. it's something must have rubbed off and come out in the writing. And... Uh, then when we, we cut the swing version, he said, you know, I, I've, I've worked out another way of doing it. I, and he played it. I said, oh, we've got to do that as well. It's like two different songs. Um, so I was a bit mad, but um, I like them both. It's mm. difficult to choose. Uh, you know, you've got a great sax solo on the, on the laid back one. I love that. Paul Young playing sax, who played on How What If You Are. So it's great for a sax solo. You're still playing shows? Yeah. You're based here now? Yeah, I just did 20-plus shows in England in October and November. I've just done one in my home village, Verwood in Dorset, where I was born, which went really well. I was like like Circles. You know, my first record was Circles, and here I am back at the beginning. <laughs> uh, but it was a great night. And this weekend, I'm off to Poland for two or three, three, actually. I'm doing a double, uh, three gigs over the weekend. Uh, yeah, it's ongoing. I've got a jazz festival in um, 
uh, fish card in August, which has just just come in. I know well, it's fresh in my mind in Cardiff, and yeah, you know, they'll, they'll keep coming. I've got a new agent, and uh, we'll be on the road for the whole year, I expect, um, to uh, get make sure the album has a chance. Uh, we'll be plugging away. Well, hopefully, um, the the message will spread and keep keep spreading, and hopefully, this podcast will be one small way where I can and spread the Very message great. on your new album and and obviously the the great music you've left and the great music to come. Thanks, Jason. That's a real help. I need all the help I can get. Thank you. It's thank a, you. a delight to talk to you. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for talking. That's lovely. See you again. Sunny skies on turned gray. Whatever happened to your here to stay? I've been struggling to fathom what happened to you. I have had to confess that the rumors are all true. I'm still mad about you How can I lose you now? I let it slip I won't want you back somehow I gotta get a grip Maybe you might give me some latitude Give me a clue I'm up for changing my attitude Cause I, I'm still mad about you I'm, I'm still mad about you Still
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew Podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.